Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio-podcast. Hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopists, I'm talking to Adron Ozcan from UCLA. We talk about the importance of communicating research with the general public. We need to protect science. And for that, there's nothing better than scientists communicating their major results as opposed to just communicating those results to their peers. The need to take ownership of your research. That letter, that paper, that article is, uh, is your commitment to science and it's going to hopefully be read by someone uh, to inspire that scientist uh, with new ideas, new directions, new things. And how advances in imaging could change the way we do security scans. What if you could build an imaging system that could only image the weapons, the metal, whatever is the target, and everything else, the body shape, etc., is filtered out. And, and those kinds of ideas are possible. All in this episode of the Microscopies. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today on the Microscopist, I'm joined by Adwan Ozcan from UCLA and HHMI. Adwan, how are you today? Doing good. Doing good. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Pleasure. Thanks for having I, me. I've, I guess my research some years ago moved into the world of label free imaging uh, with tychography, so it's not, not holography. Uh, and we've never personally met partially because my diary is absolutely shocking to get to the meetings I've been invited and wanting to go to. But the film seems really collegiate. And how is that really the case? Because you'll know the film much better than I do. Uh, how is the field of holography and how, how does that interact together? It's a small market. So I can imagine there's lots of competition because there's not many of us in there. But how is it in reality? Uh, yes, it's a very collegial field, and it's very international. Um, and I learned this firsthand by, you know, by entering a holography field um, from scratch. Basically, my PhD was uh, nothing to do with holography, uh, nothing to do with microscopy, and nothing to do with imaging, actually, and nothing to do with biophotonics. <laughs> so you can imagine how, you know, uh, I'm kind of an orphan. Uh, trying to find my own way, you know, my own lab and everything. And um, I, I think holography field, label-free imaging, QPI, quantitative phase imaging field, uh, is a very open-minded, um, uh, you know, field with a lot of international leaders um, uh, kind of embracing new ideas, newcomers, uh, and... Uh, and that certainly helped me set my stage. And I could feel that as I was bringing some new insights, new ways of doing things, uh, they, they were kind of um, opening a space for me and uh, including me uh, in, in various different conferences, uh, kind of like helping me um, move forward with my career. Uh, and I first firsthand observed how collegial the, the environment, the field uh, is and still is. And, and it's very international at the same time. You have, yeah. you know, uh, researchers from the U.S., the, you know, from Europe, Asia, uh, different parts of the world, different universities, different continents. Uh, it's beautiful. It's really bringing the joy of science because um, otherwise, without the human factor, without, without uh, this... Uh, you know, uh, friendship that you build over years, it's very stressful. <laughs> it's just competition after competition, you know, getting scooped, uh, scooping others. You know, science uh, has some competition to it, and that's, that's natural, and it's, uh, it, you know, kind of uh, gets the best out of every research lab, right? It brings some fresh air. But it must be balanced with, with friendship and uh, you, you need to really feel um, the the environment being being open to newcomers with new ideas. That's the only way to uh, stop self beating. It's very dangerous to have, you know, uh, certain labs dominating the field with their own proteges. And you know, that, I've seen fields like that. But fortunately, in general, holography and label free uh, imaging 
is far away from that. And it's a blessing for me. It's been a blessing for me. And I think it's a blessing for everybody because it promotes innovation. It promotes newcomers to come with unique perspectives. And it makes it fun, honestly, uh, to attend conferences, learn from each other, collaborate, establish new collaborations. And still, there's competition. And competition is extremely healthy if it's balanced with, with such an environment, with friendship and everything. So I can certainly say that is the case for uh, label-free imaging holography, and it's been a blessing for me. Yeah, I think yeah, when I look at publications, there's a few megastars in the world of digital holography, label-free imaging, of which you're one. Uh, Gabby was another from Parks, another. I'm not going to name everyone because otherwise I'll offend someone by not using them. But what also amazes me, some of the conferences are co-organized by the same people. So although they're competing, they're also coming together to bring the community together. So, yeah, and Gubby was fantastic in that, actually. Um, uh, Gubby um, uh, is a big loss for optics and holography and label-free imaging. Um, he was a great person. Um, he was very deep um, in theory. Uh, when you visited his office, you could clearly see uh, papers that he was driving things like, you know, he was behind uh, all the uh, theoretical frameworks uh, of the major instruments that uh, his lab pioneered in QPI field. And he was very rigorous and deep as a scholar. At the same time, a great colleague, uh, friendly um, you know, he would be critical of, of certain things that he doesn't understand, but but you would feel that it's out of curiosity and and his scholars scholarship depth. But at the same time, he would be open, welcoming, and um, helping you kind of um, with with uh, with with your new approaches. Um, when I was uh, first working on um, partially coherent holographic microscopy on a chip for ultra high throughput, uh, you know, sensing, microscopic imaging, pathology, telemedicine type of applications, ultra compact, cost-effective, but at the same time, some beautiful math behind it in terms of partial coherence, spatially and temporal coherence engineering. You know, he was one of the first to kind of appreciate it. Um, and uh, I, I guess scholarly support, um, and I'm sure without knowing uh, he must have, or his team must have reviewed some of our papers as well and making them through the review process perhaps better. Uh, I'm just guessing because he's, he's a prominent name and, and we publish quite a bit, um, sometimes 20 papers a year, right? So uh, it, it would go to some of, some of the colleagues. So overall, um, it's a big loss. I want to remember here, uh, Gabi Popescu and his legacy, not only an amazing scholar, very productive scholar and entrepreneur, startup companies commercializing his instrumentation, uh, trying to create a community around him, uh, around QPI, QPI instrumentation, trying to convince biologists, uh, pathologists, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, especially cell biologists on the benefits of QPI. Uh, while doing so, he was also a great instructor, um, co-author of, um, of uh, an important book, uh, and organizing conferences, inviting uh, you know uh, different people around him to form a community, a welcoming community. Um, so it's a big loss, but at the same time, you learn quite a bit uh, from his legacy of how how science evolves and how you know science benefits from leaders like him. Um, and at the same time, bringing some humor, some some human insights, human human nature as yeah. part of the scholarship to make it welcoming and at the same time entertaining, enjoyable uh, during this, you know, scientific exploration as a field. So, Adam, that, that leads to, there's a couple of questions I want to ask on the back of that. Uh, the first one, I think I'm going to go down the direction of you. We're all trying to push label-free and, and quantitative phase imaging and, and in towards a life science market because it's got a huge potential there. But it still doesn't seem to be hugely utilized yet. Now, I, I've certainly got my ideas why it's not massively. I've got to say, York has embraced it quite well. So we have a couple of instruments and they are saturated in use, which is good. But it's, that's not common uh, across all of academia. 
do you have any feeling why? What, what are your thoughts of why it hasn't yet become the next confocal microscopy, for example? Um, so it's, it's a great question. Um, part of it is, um, I think, well, it's, it's very, uh, let's, let's put it this way. A fair analysis of this uh, needs some sophisticated research uh, on customers, on, on the users. We call it, for commercialization of technology, um, customer discovery. Yeah. So I think that's one of the um, <laughs> most important things that academicians uh, were, were obsessed with, with you know, novelty, with capabilities, innovation, instrumentation, you know, those kinds of things that are driving engineers and scientists as, you know, as the goal. But impact, translation of impact into a domain where there are other key players like cell biologists, let's say, or pathology market, let's say. It's a very different game. It's actually, you need to understand the landscape of the users, what they need, uh, and money, like, you know, the market. Who's, who's selling those instruments? Who's reimbursing them? Uh, distribution channels, manufacturers. Those, those kinds of things dictate success. Um, and, and I think someone has to study um, label-free imaging for cell biology uh, from the perspective of users. Um, how does it compare to fluorescence-based methods that, that are currently employed? Uh, what are the advantages? Uh, what would it take to translate? Um, uh, you should also think about uh, new instrumentation. Um, how, how, you know, what's the cost point of a new instrumentation to disrupt the existing technologies? How much uh, is a lab, for example, in Europe willing to pay for a new instrument? Is it you know, at a level where they can dump their existing solutions and entirely go, go to that? What are the advantages of label-free approaches uh, that would be, uh, you know, the massive markets? For pathology, this is cell biology. For pathology, it's an entire new animal. So one of them is, is an orange, the other one's an apple, and you have to study yeah. them separately. The lessons will not translate. Pathology is a very conservative field. And when you... <laughs> exceptionally conservative. Exceptionally conservative. <laughs> exceptionally conservative. I, I, I like that word, yes. Um, it, it, it is, and uh, th therefore, there the, the rule of the game would be you know, <clears throat> throughput. Uh, so things like ultra-fast scanning. So you will be competing for the pathology market, let's say. You will be competing with uh, uh, systems that can, in, in a couple of minutes, scan a five centimeter square with diffraction-limited resolution. These are the Ferraris of pathology microscopes, whole slide scanners. Yeah. Uh, so, so all in all, I think um, the field uh, of QPI, holography, will need to first understand the uh, most valuable product and the value proposition in entering a domain that they want to disrupt with with the uh, with the, with the instrument uh, and. For that, that starts with a very careful analysis of advantages, disadvantages, and who's going to who's going to be paying for the advantages, uh, and at what point, and, and what can you achieve as a as a scientist engineer to meet those needs. For holography in general, reconstruction engines, in you know, speaking of yeah. creating QPI, there is the, the problem with with commercial success and impact, I think, is also a little bit hampered by the revolution of the digital background of how do you get to the QPI, let alone the hardware. The instrument is constantly upgrading itself in the, in the, you know, the next uh, you know, five years. It's going to upgrade itself, transform itself, let's say, compared to the previous five years. Because in the middle of whole you know, uh, uh, QPI revolution, Deep learning came, and all of a sudden, a lot of the reconstruction engines were also getting some transformative advances uh, in, in the way that reconstructions are done. This is great, but uh, you know, a startup company, uh, there's a joke for startups, right? 
if you want to succeed, at some point you have to kill the engineer. Because if the <laughs> stop <laughs> developing and sell. Exactly. So yeah. if the product keeps getting better and better, it's cool from science perspective, but impact perspective, you need to kind of stop the growth at some point and uh, start the development and sales uh, with a device that is locked, uh, you know, ready to go. So it, isn't that like publishing, though, even in the research lab, that there's people who always see the next thing and want the next thing before they publish. So instead of thinking, OK, that's my paper, let's publish. They think, oh, but just one more experiment will add more and then more and then more. And then this work is no longer relevant. Right? Yes. That, that, kind of a similar true. philosophy. Uh, absolutely. It's similar. But it doesn't hurt the paper. The paper uh, will can be two papers put together, supplementary, can have a lot of those relatively irrelevant older things to support certain claims, but not the main claim of the paper. And you can get away with it with a very long paper. Uh, if you carefully draft it, some of that earlier development yeah. can be hidden in the supplement. But market success with instrumentation, with startups that take QPI or other kinds of biophotonics interventions, inventions into kind of next step, you know, it's going to hurt if you keep doing that because uh, then the target is changing and you burn a lot of cash and do, do not deliver. So uh, for pathology, you cannot afford doing that because you need to start validating your technologies with biomedical stuff, with clinical studies. And if it keeps changing, FDA won't let you do anything, right? <clears throat> you know, so there, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of things that are lumped into impact when it comes to biomedical space because of the regulations, because of the customers not being engineers and they're skeptical. They don't want to change their tools uh, if they're working well. So that means uh, QPI has perhaps a little more time to mature, to settle. Um, and the, the techniques in terms of hardware and software that are the most competitive that are being currently translated into spin-offs and into you know products or co-development by engineers and biologists. We will see how it goes. There will be a filter of time, but through that time, I'm very hopeful. I'm I believe there are going to be home runner applications in QPI holography for pathology, for biomedical diagnostics, for sensing, for cell biology. We will just have to wait wait a little bit more for the time to kind of filter the most competitive approaches that meet the demand at the same time, the right team taking it with the business, with the engineering team. So I think that's my take on it. I'm very optimistic overall, but uh, it's, it's fair to say that there's a lot going on and in general, computational imaging. Computational imaging field is transforming and it's going to continue transforming. Yeah, I... I, I couldn't agree. Obviously, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> but I think yeah, quantitative phase imaging. One of the other problems is it's still relatively new to the to the cell biology field. That cell biologists are not microscopists, and they've built into their grant the use of fluorescent dyes and the application to do it. At the moment, quantitative phase QPI. It's still a bit of a novelty and they're not sure what they're going to get at. They're not asking the questions that they can ask with it because it enables us to ask utterly new questions of our samples that we weren't before. That, I say at York, you know, it's taken time. You know, we've been since 2010, I think, working with uh, tychography, so not holography, but a form of quantitative phase imaging. And it's taken a while to get the users to appreciate, understand. But as soon as they do, it, it's yeah, they, they use it a lot and start publishing, which is, which is great news. And I think you said about the digital pathology and the, the difficulties of getting it to market. And I, I, there's certain companies I work with, not just in the quantitative phase place, but in, in other technologies too. There comes a point you're better just to sell to the research market to get an income coming in and then fine tune it to get it to the clinical market. So at least you've got an income. In income coming in now we should, we should very i did say i'll get too geeky in this one so i've got to be very careful the other part of the question you mentioned earlier you said how gabby you, you went in his office and there was lots going on lots of different ideas there do you know i think that's a bit rich coming from you who publishes maybe 20 publications a year which is a huge amount and it's not just in 
quantitative phase imaging. It's not just in holography. You're, you yourself have tons of work going on, uh, publishing huge. And actually, what this is a really key bit that I think is a really good message for people to understand. It's not just the publications. There's a lot of commentary that you do. So you'll see articles in New Scientist in newspapers, articles showing the relevance to society today. <laughs> Firstly, how big is your group? Secondly, how on earth do you publish 20 papers a year? And three, how important is communication outside of the scientific field? So to, to get it broader. So let me start with the last one. Um, I learned that actually um, uh, when I was a junior faculty, um, the, the power of press releases uh, or the power of communicating your science in short pieces with one figure, simple, uh, lay language uh, that news uh, reporters are accustomed to writing, and maybe at most 700, uh, a thousand words, like kind of like news articles. It, it, it's so powerful, the storytelling aspect of it. Uh, I, I learned that um, when I was visiting National Geographic, um, this was the, the, year, the years that I was into mobile microscopy, for a developing world uh, and using the mobile phone as a, as a vehicle to bring more advanced sensing and uh, microscopy and in general measurement tools to kind of resource limited settings. So that was kind of the story initially that I had. It was matching a, a poor startup package because it's, it must work in resource limited settings. So good, uh, you know, you don't spend too much time and money to you know, to create very sophisticated devices that uh, take a whole bench, you kind of, it also matches your junior faculty budget. But anyways, I was working on mobile inexpensive microscopy and um, was invited to nation, you know, National Geographic to talk about it. And also uh, they, they were honoring kind of like this new direction that, that I was working on. And there they were kind of also educating uh, a bunch of us um, about what they do about, about the importance of storytelling. Uh, there were instructors that, uh, you know, were educating us in short uh, sessions about storytelling. That was the first time that I heard about storytelling from the context of science. And it was like, wow, you know, that, that, you know during my PhD or postdoc, I never uh, understood that, the importance of that, the significance of that. And it coming from National Geographic kind of helped me kind of realize the importance of that. Uh, and Think more about it, and through the whole process uh, of, of you know learning and kind of like understanding the importance of it, I developed this kind of uh, habit of whenever I have a major result, twenty pages of <laughs> uh, publication, lots of equations, figures, graphs, various different kinds. I always try to summarize it to one figure and something like five hundred to seven hundred words of impact statement. That is a draft of a press release. And, and, and that was priceless for many reasons because it helped me disseminate uh, the key important points to the public. It's great for funding agencies because that's the taxpayer yeah. money. Everywhere globally, it's the taxpayer money that pays our research and our training and, and, and publishing mission scholarship mission, training next generation, that's done through taxpayer money. You have to educate the public that this was funded by, let's say the National Science Foundation, and that's how that foundation taking billions of dollars of tax money, giving it back to universities is so essential. And, and that's, that's number one. Number two, it's also bringing faith in science. Uh, science is under attack globally, unfortunately. Uh, it's, it's accelerated over the last 10 years that I was seeing um, from at least where I, where I stand. We need to protect science. And for that, there's nothing better than scientists communicating their major results as opposed to just communicating those results to their peers, which is very important, but it's equally, in my opinion, especially in this era, to communicate your science and how it is going to make life better. It's very easy for engineers to, to talk about this, I believe, because engineering at scale is making life better and easier for people at, at scale. 
And, and that story is already evident uh, in a lot of our work. I was very fortunate. Uh, I had a, a communication channel with the public through the mobile phone, because mobile phones are addictive, right? Uh, especially for the teenagers. I used that as a way to kind of understand firsthand the power of it. And, and from that point on, I, 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 I started to kind of have a workflow for that. Um, in fact, it also helped me bring funding, believe it or not. Um, there was once a case, this is very kind of funny. Um, through a press release that we had from UCLA, a foundation contacted me and told me, would you be interested in working on Lyme disease? At that point, I didn't know how Lyme disease was you know, transmitted and what are the ways to diagnose it. As I was speaking to the foundation, I was trying to kind of understand more about the disease. So they found us uh, through a press release and they thought we could be a you know, good engineering group to work yeah. on Lyme disease to transform, you know, a new kind of create new kinds of point of care diagnostic tests. That kind of an interaction um, enabled me to bring a large team at UCLA working on Lyme disease for the last five, six years, multi-million dollar. Uh, fast forward, we have a, a, a multiplexed Lyme disease point of care test uh, read by a mobile phone, very inexpensive and better than the currently available FDA approved technologies in our opinion, published on it. Um, but that was something where literally they found us. And the next week, me and my colleague took Uber from UCLA uh, to a Hollywood villa. Uh, the, the founders of the foundation were, were there. And with, with a box uh, like solicitors, I was carrying mobile phone-based microscopes and different things, uh, got out of the Uber, and I thought, well, before security kicks us out because uh, they would think we're solicitors, let's quickly <laughs> go in there and that, that's how it was launched, and that was purely PR helping. So that was a long answer, but that's actually, actually very yeah, important. That, that's and kind of the dream, isn't it? It's kind of the dream is to do a press release and someone realise the importance of the work and help sponsor it, help speed up the development. And in your case, actually, slightly better than that, because it's also given it another biological application that has, Absolutely. you know, point-of-patient care. Yeah, it, it helped me establish a team. Through that, um, I started a long-term collaboration with the microbiology group at UCLA. Uh, since then, we're you know weekly meeting and formed a core team and expanded uh, our ideas. It was so challenging that at some point I had to invent a new way of doing it. That was fantastic because that helped me bring some new insights to sensing, in my opinion, because Lyme disease was so challenging that we were failing in the first two years. And like spinning wheels, and we said, you know, let's let's do it a different way, and it worked, and uh, that's catalyzed by 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 the PR. And and I tell this every every time to new generation of students that come to my lab because um, they should understand the importance of this communication. Internet has a memory, and those PR pieces that you publish will help uh, disseminate science, its impact funding agencies impact, your own labs impact, your trainees impact, and will bring confidence to science and hopefully help you kind of maintain uh, a healthy uh, funding environment for what to do. Going back to your original question about, you know, number of papers and, and you know, what, 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 what does it take? So I take my papers quite seriously. A lot of people uh, perhaps um, with uh, these papers are not short papers. These papers will have uh, quite a, a lengthy supplementary material. And if you put them together, some of them will be 50 pages with supplementary. So um, it's a lot of work. And um, scholarship, in my opinion, is, is, uh, is your communication channel with the future. Uh, and for centuries, science has been propagated to us and the next generations through written scholarship. Written scholarship to me is the most important way of talking to the future, you know, new generations. 
And I love that. That's, that's my passion. That communication is the storytelling, not to the public, to the peers. To the peers that will perhaps meet me when I'm close to my retirement, maybe after retirement. That's my letter to the future. And, and I take it that way. And, and that's why it's so important for me. Every figure, every subsection, every method section, those are really things that I craft. And even the proofs, I take it very serious because I don't like uh, inaccurate science to propagate. And that's why even the proof stage, I'm deeply involved. And it's not stamping for me. It's not just like, you know, you write the paper and we put our names. It's far away from that. It, it must be uh, your signature. And as, as a result, it's your kind of like your, your legacy. And you must make sure that it, that letter, that paper, that article, is uh, is your commitment to science, and it, it's going to hopefully be read by someone uh, to inspire that scientist uh, with new ideas, new directions, new things. And that's what I love about science. I mean, think about a scholarship that you can talk to ten years from now, the new generation, and uh, you know, twenty years from now, the new generation. Sometimes in conferences, you must have the same thing, right? You get approached uh, by people, junior. Maybe the first time attending a conference, they look at your badge and then they they realize your name and then it triggers that they don't know your face, but it triggers a certain paper that they read, and you know you start communicating with the previous generation, like twenty years younger than you. That's that's why I do science. That's actually exactly um, my letter that is uh, published maybe fifteen years ago finding its uh, correspondent, and uh, we, we talk about it briefly and exchange uh, ideas, but that person must have read it and is doing something useful with it that I didn't do or I didn't even anticipate at that time. And that's why I take it very serious. Uh, and, and I think the volume is not important. Uh, everybody has a different flavor. Some, some labs are uh, more focused uh, on one theme. Some are uh, more diverse. In my group, there are three different core areas. If you divide them separately, they could sustain as a separate lab. One of them is computational imaging. The other one is uh, sensing, point of care sensing, mobile sensing. And the third one is uh, optical computing, um, a recently emerging area. So these three play out, and, and I have groups that collaborate, but they're also sustaining themselves. So that's why kind of the volume might be larger. But at the core, um, I have this passion for for uh, for for those papers. They, they excite me because of the story and again the, the communication channel to the future. I, you mentioned your three areas of research. Uh, so obviously you've got your lensless and your holography side. And actually, Laura Waller, uh, a recent podcast guest, in a very similar area, sort of probably different target markets of where these applications are being developed for. And he talks about the sensing, but you talk about optical computing. Very briefly, what on earth is optical computing? So, um, so, so I, I mean, the, the, the theme that I'm working on is a, a specific uh, class of optical computing where it's um, structured material um, using deep learning uh, so that the material itself, uh, think of a, uh, of a volume of a material where it's composed of layers. Each layer is transparent, let's say, but at the wavelength scale or sub-wavelength scale, it has a code in it, um, which diffracts light with certain phase delay at the wavelength scale, but there are uh, thousands of individual phase elements that are engraved in each layer. So uh, this kind of a, a material, we, we call it diffractive network, which means uh, it's a passive material that is engineered at the wavelength scale, layer by layer, very thin. Maybe layer to layer separation is uh, a few lambda to a few tens of lambda. In the visible, one of these things would be like a stamp. So the question is, how, to, how do you design these, uh, these stamps, volumetric diffractive uh, elements? And what do you do with them? What can what can light waves, as they propagate through these diffractive uh, elements, compute for you? So um, these are task-specific all-optical computers that you design using uh, deep learning. But once the design phase in a computer is over, 
you go to the next phase and fabricate them using 3D printing, lithography, your favorite tool. You build these layer by layer uh, diffractive systems to create a passive material. This passive material, you can think of it as a superset to uh, a, a, an imaging lens. So, um, for example, you can build uh, a, a diffractive camera which um, does computational imaging behind a diffuser. So, as you know, uh, seeing through walls, seeing through fog, or seeing through the skin, diffusive uh, elements and random uh, diffusive elements is, you know, seeing through them is a challenging problem. And there are different ways of tackling this as an example. Um, but all of them are computer-based. What if uh, you could design a diffractive camera which solves um, this inverse problem of seeing behind a complete diffuser with a new volumetric uh, processor that processes the wave that is scattered by the phase diffuser. The rule of the game for these kinds of inverse problems to be all optically performed with passive materials is to model um, this wave propagation with thousands of examples of random diffusers. What we do is, in a computer, we actually mm -hmm. show many examples of objects and random diffusers with a certain correlation, like with a certain grain size. We constantly change them, and there is a diffractive volume that we're trying to adjust the phase values uh, within layer by layer design until all optically the image behind the, the, the diffractive layers is uh, preserving the features of the unknown object behind the diffuser. So this training cycle uh, continues for many epochs. And at the end, you show, let's say, a couple of thousand examples of random diffusers. Then that volumetric uh, system that you've learned after you fabricate it generalizes to actually see unknown objects through unknown random diffusers. Um, by a very elegant uh, principle where it actually, um, if you look at what kind of a diffractive element you have converged at the end, it's composed of tiny phase islands per layer, like micro lenses, yeah. that, are, that are forming a, a relatively dense uh, array, which is axially aligned to the next layer. So the communication of the diffractive layers is happening um, be between the diffractive layers is happening through this array of micro lenses. But that's the imaging backbone. The space between the micro lenses is uh, surrounded by rapid phase perturbations. And those phase perturbations are rejecting the modes of the phase diffuser to side, like ra radiation, radiation modes, kind of like leaky modes. It acts like a filter, a random filter that is uh, understanding the modes of the random diffuser. And in the meantime, passing the wave coming from uh, the, uh, the object plane. It's a good example of an inverse imaging problem that is solved at the speed of light, which means uh, it's a passive computer, task-specific. Uh, it doesn't consume power because it's transparent material that is structured once you fabricate. Um, it's scalable. You can make it wider to compute in parallel. And the most important thing is it doesn't digitize anything or it doesn't store any memory of an image to be, inverse, uh, to be uh, inverted because the solution of the object is appearing at the speed of light behind the diffractive system. So these kinds of cameras are uh, uh, possible with diffractive computing using based the degrees of freedom in materials to process waves. And com compared to electronic computer vision systems, the biggest advantage that I see in this line of research is this. Today's computer vision, um, you have a scene. It contains a wave that has the object information in the phase channel, like QPI systems, or amplitude channel, spectrum, polarization, you name it. If you want to act on that information, rich information in front of you, you digitize it, you pre-process it, and use GPUs. That's the traditional machine vision system. It requires a, a, a setup digitization, storage cloud, and GPUs. These kinds of processors, diffractive processors, I think are uniquely positioned to take the advantage of the information in the analog domain within a certain aperture and compute 
diffraction-limited transformations, diffraction-limited uh, uh, you know, computation on the fly. In fact, this framework we've shown is a universal linear transformer. It can perform between any input-output, input-plane and an output-plane. It can uh, perform any arbitrary spatially varying point spread function at the diffraction limit. So think of a spatially varying complex point spread function between an input and output aperture arbitrary. At every point, an arbitrary point spread function. You can program it to do universal linear transformations in the complex domain, uh, which also translates into matrix uh, vector multiplication, not just convolutional any kind. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting framework that we have been playing to build um, you know, diffractive cameras of various different kinds, um, solving the uh, imaging through the fuser kind of a problem. A recent work showed that it can be useful for building class-specific cameras, which means another machine vision problem that we have today is we digitize everything. Uh, we, we, we capture everything and then sort it out. Uh, what if you could have actually a camera that rejects photons if the ordinary is within your field of view and only lets the photons and the image pass through if it's of the class that you want to image. We call it class-specific imaging. Think of an industrial application where security screening. Every time you go through the security screening, you know, every part of your body is imaged with terahertz scanners. But we're, it makes us uncomfortable because you know, that's not what they're looking at. Why aren't they imaging our body? What if you could build an imaging system that could only image the weapons, the metal, <clears throat> whatever is, is the target, and everything else, the body shape, etc., is filtered out. And, and those kinds of ideas are possible. In fact, a lot of these kinds of diffractive cameras, we built them in terahertz waves. And um, because the fabrication, um, we're using a 3D printer for a lot of these ideas to be tested experimentally. In, in, in terahertz, plastic is like gloss. It's transparent. And 3D printers are having sufficient resolution at terahertz waves. So we built, uh, actually, I have one of these next to me. This is actually, um, let me see. Let me put, this is a diffractive um, uh, system. It's got three different layers to it. Uh, if I bring closer, maybe you can see. This has three different layers to it. Uh, you don't see, you only see the outer layer. It's actually yeah. a diffractive processor for seeing through diffusers where there, there, there are thousands of lambda over two features, half a wavelength features here, that together uh, does a certain um, a transformation, in this case uh, for, uh, oh, this was a class-specific imaging. This was uh, imaging a, a certain data class and erasing everything else. So, you know, that's, that's the fun of uh, optics. It, it's got so many interesting degrees of freedom to it that you can play and uh, find yourself in, in a playground and entertain. Adwin, how on earth? I, I get all that side, just about get that side, <clears throat> but I can see actually quite an industrial application for that and uh, materials engineering type applications. Yes. And yet, so many of your that, that I'm familiar with applications are actually around the biomedical yes. side. You said at the very start your PhD was not in microscopy. It was not in the very. What was your PhD? It, got to be careful, Tyson. Secondly, what was your PhD roughly? Yeah, my PhD was on uh, nonlinear optics. Um, I was uh, working on silica and um, amorphous silica and um, trying to introduce um, second-order nonlinearity. Um, through the rectification of Chi-3 processes so that there is a Chi-2 with built-in electric field uh, rectification of Chi-3. So kind of like with the motivation of building electro-optic modulators in fiber-optic cables. So that's what I've done. Uh, but it's not very in the engineering side. Yes. Applied physics engineering, yes. How did you get into biomed? <laughs> so, yeah. So... Um, the, the tools that I created to look into materials, um, so you were creating nonlinear <clears throat> materials, right? But the, this was not a standard nonlinear material. It was non-uniform. So I had to invent new techniques to image what I was uh, creating. So I built some nonlinear 
material characterization tools with some math behind it. Then I realized the math was applicable to optical coherence tomography. So you can think of a pole glass where you induce a certain non-uniform electric field, very strong frozen electric field through charge distribution that rectifies chi 3 That's actually um, like imaging tissue in a sense with similar ideas. You, you uh, understand the nonlinear coefficient that is uh, spatially non-uniform. And I realized that entire math that I was working on was applicable to optical coherence tomography. And uh, that's how in the final you know, half a year of my PhD, I looked into OCT a little bit, OCT yeah. literature, uh, published a paper, I think, on it. Uh, yeah, I think uh, a, a journal and a conference on OCT and applications. And <clears throat> looked into the space, and that was the time that I was looking for a postdoc, and moved into Harvard, Harvard Medical School, to work on optical coherence tomography and other biomedical imaging modalities. From literally uh, engineering, uh, from Stanford engineering, I went to a hospital, Mass General Hospital in Boston, and started to eat uh, where patients and doctors uh, were eating every day with, with all the smell of the uh, hospital and everything. So that's how I got uh, into biophotonics field and uh, uh, microscopy imaging. That was like, uh, you know, in my first year at, in, in postdoc uh, at Harvard. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to take you out of work a minute. It's pretty intense. You, you've got big team you've got lots going on you've got three main streams in the lab you've almost got three different labs working on different aspects when you go home in the evening how do you chill out what are your hobbies so um yeah my life is also a faculty so <laughs> it, you know even if i want to i want to completely um uh, detach myself it's not always possible because um uh, we sometimes collaborate so at home i have another scientist that I collaborate and publish with. So, you know, detaching entirely from science is harder because even if I detach, you know, it's the likelihood of two small numbers multiplying each other, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so that's how it goes. Um, so, but I'm pretty good in turning off my mind if I want. So if I, if I for example, take a 20 minute walk from my office to get coffee, uh, if I want, I can completely turn off my mind and just enjoy, um, you know, LA, LA weather and um, the buildings and the, the, the trees around me and people, I, I like observing people. So it's easy for me kind of to kind of relax uh, because if I'm not working uh, uh, on anything uh, and if I'm not thinking about a problem in mind, uh, sometimes I like to kind of turn off my computer and just think about a problem. Uh, with a piece of paper and a pen. And those are the times where I sometimes come up with ideas. And a lot of my students get these pictures where I literally, you know, sometimes a napkin, I did napkin-based, you know, uh, ideas that turned into good papers. Uh, sometimes, you know, simple uh, A4 papers. If I'm not one of those days where I, 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 I feel this, right? So sometimes you bombard yourself with a lot of papers writing this and that, right? After a while, you say, okay, Look, uh, I'm depleting my new ideas. I have to you know, plug myself off and just take a piece of paper, just a paper and a pen, and think about you know what should I do next? Like, what is a good stepping stone? If I'm not in one of those modes or working on something, I like um, cooking. Uh, um, okay. All of food. Uh, and is this cooking uh, main sort of dinner type cooking, snack type cooking, or? Uh, Pudding type cooking, dessert. Type I, cooking. I, I wish pudding, but I can't. I, I cannot have as much dessert. I was cooking, uh, you know, desserts, but uh, uh, you know, it was not. It was not good for my health. So no dessert cooking, but dinner type of cooking. Um, at some point in my life, I I was literally kind of having a cookbook and follow the recipes there to kind of learn how advanced cooking is. Mm -hmm. I did that, and it was very instructive. Uh, but then I gave up on it. I, I kind of uh, went with my own innovation. So I like cooking the same thing in 10 different ways every time, depending on what my fridge uh, has and, you know, trying to kind of um, invent new dishes. Uh, but in general, I like cooking and, and my wife at least doesn't complain. Um, What's your favorite style of cooking? Um, Italian. So uh, I think my main ingredient that I cannot cook without is tomato. 
yeah. and olive oil. I think tomato and olive oil can make any dish great. So I'm a big fan of uh, those two ingredients. That's why I like a lot of Italian stuff. And also like feta cheese and uh, tomato combination to me. To me, like um, there are certain things that are paired uh, to, you know, that are created like uh, to pair with each other, like coffee and milk is one of those. Uh, tomato and uh, feta cheese is, in my opinion, like in Greek salads. Uh, and, um, um, and olive oil with, you know, with tomato. This is another yep. one. So, yeah, in general, I like Italian cuisine a lot. Okay, so some quick fire questions. We're moving on to the, the food side. So I'm going to ask some quick fire. Uh, I already know this answer because I know in the UK right now when we're recording, it's early morning and for you it's really late. So are you an early bird or an night owl? Yeah, I like nights more than early, early mornings. Uh, that's where I probably get also a little bit more creative. Okay. PC or Mac? PC. McDonald's or Burger King? Neither of them. I've never <laughs> had any... Uh, did I have any McDonald's burger? No, I think I didn't. Same with burger. Maybe at an airport. I don't know. But no, no. I, 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 I'm against uh, all, all, everything that they are after. So it's, it's so, so, um, okay. so unfair. Coffee or tea? Obviously, coffee. There's, uh, yeah, there's a lot more fun in coffee. Short coffee or long coffee? Um, I, uh, for me, cappuccino. Uh, it must be always with milk and uh, uh, foamy, and and uh, there's a certain distribution of you know foam and air grease that must be in my coffee, which is hard to find outside. That's why I, I like having my own cappuccinos made. So, so you have your own coffee machine. You froth your yes. own milk. Yes, uh, I, 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 you know, I have my own way of having cappuccino. And it's very difficult for me to kind of enjoy uh, the Starbucks of the world. Good man. Not, 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 not because of the Starbucks. But just good man. Actually, having the the art to be a good barista and get your milk just as you want it. Exactly. That's very important. I think uh, the density of the foam uh, is the uh, is the main ingredient to make a successful cappuccino. For me, that's the most important. I've got a son that's currently a, a barista and yeah, he, he can do it better. Ah, oh, so frustrating because I've always had the coffee machines always steam my own milk. Uh, he can do it better than me. And I'm so frustrated. <laughs> so, so fr and you give him any steam arm and he can make that steam arm work much quicker than I can learn how to use that steam. Because every steam arm, you have to relearn how to yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing again. Beer or wine? Um... Honestly, I'm not a big fan of, uh, I don't drink um, uh, alcohol, but, but I guess uh, because of the fruitful flavor, uh, I would say wine. Okay. Chocolate or cheese? Huh, that's a good question. Um, I don't like chocolate cake or chocolate cheesecake, sorry. Yeah. So the combination is not a good thing for me. Uh, I love both of them separately. I cannot, you know, pick one. I, I love cheese and I love chocolate, but not the combination. Okay. If you were to have, if you were to go to a conference and someone was to put a meal in front of you, which you quite often is on involuntary, you get given new food. What would be the best food that they could put in front of you? Since it's probably lunch, I would love to get a wheat um, salad with. Very good fresh tomatoes, like the reddest ones, good cucumber and good feta cheese and olive oil. Of, of course. you got the tomatoes. you got the, of course. Yeah. What would be the worst thing that they could put in front of you? Pasta with uh, no tomato in it and overcooked and not even cheese on it. So plain pasta overcooked. Uh, with just not even olive oil, think of just you know greasy other kinds of oil. <laughs> that would be the worst because uh, you know I'm not a big fan of carb, uh, and uh, it's the worst form of car carb overcooked pasta. Okay, TV or book? Uh, book. Okay, and what what are you reading at the moment, or what what genre do you like to read when you do get a chance to read a book that isn't scientific literature? Um. So. Uh, 
I think. Um, um, I mean, novels uh, certainly like um, uh, uh, from from the classics would be great. Um, like you know, novel series like you know, Albert Camus and you know writers like that, which have the uh, um, the psychology behind the human. Uh, those would be uh, would be kind of interesting uh, for me to kind of relax and detach from from the modern times. Okay. And do you have a favorite film, movie? Uh, yes, I do. Um, it's maybe so, how can I say? Um, I mean, I like Godfather quite a bit. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not, series. <laughs> not the first, no, just the first one. Um, because I think Marlon Brando is uh, is an amazing uh, was an amazing uh, actor, and I think the first one where you know he's playing uh, it's amazing. You nailed it, done amazing roles. <laughs> we oh my okay, this is going to have to run just over the hour, so I apologize to the listeners or viewers. It's my fault, uh, but I, I, there's more questions I have to ask. <laughs> you quite clearly love your job and what you are doing. But when you were a young child, 10, 11, 12, what was the first career that you aspired towards? Um, without knowing what it is, I think I was intrigued uh, by the word um, uh, nuclear scientist, uh, nuclear engineer. I think without knowing what it is, I, 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 I felt fascinated by uh, you know, by, by that uh, notion of having enormous energy and control of energy uh, uh, with, with, you know, breaking of the atom without, again, understanding what they do. That was kind of like the science element of it was very uh, appealing. But that was when I was probably four years old, five years old, just hearing the words yeah. uh, of that nature. But soon after, you know, when I when I got introduced to uh, math and science, it, it changed uh, that I, I was interested at the intersection of math and physics. Okay, so now now I'm going to take you forward to today, or in a few years' time. If there's any job that you could do for a day, or a week, or a year, what other type of job would you like to go and sample, or just to try out and see what it's like in that environment? Um. So uh, let's see. I have a passion for basketball. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's uh, if you think about a basketball player, it's so competitive. You, you know, you must work very hard uh, to play uh, at the top level game after game and without, you know, injuries. Um, but it must at the same time feel an amazing adrenaline, like with thousands of people uh, uh, in the crowd. So I would love to you know, face what it feels to be a professional basketball player and play at that level. Um, but I, I believe it must be very intense to maintain that kind of pace with all the travel and the training and everything. So nothing is very easy, but that would be something that would be cool for me because I, I really love basketball. And who's your team? Um, I, I, you know, I'm I'm not supporting just one team. Um, I mean, when Kobe was playing, <clears throat> Lakers um, was was a great team for me uh, to support. Um, I like also European teams, uh, European basketball teams. Um, they they play quite different than NBA. Their um, their level is more um, defense uh, oriented and and the level of basketball. I don't know if, if you follow a European uh, basketball league. I'm a soccer fan. Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, soccer is also pretty entertaining for me. But but basketball, um, uh, I, I like European basketball a little bit more than the NBA. NBA is really show-oriented, very little defense compared to Europeans. So uh, especially over the last 10 years, the European basketball league uh, advanced quite a bit in terms of uh, you know, entertainment and how fun it is to watch these top teams compete. Okay. I, we, we are actually just over the hour. Uh, 
do you know I think I've got more questions left than I've ever had left at the end of a podcast so I I'm hoping that we can come back and some of these are more scientifically orientated questions I actually I hope we can come back maybe with another guest as well and talk more in depth about lens-free microscopy quantitative phase imaging and the future of that and the potential applications but before I leave I'm going to ask you is there anything you'd like to convey or say uh, is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd really like to communicate or have we covered the main points today? Yeah, I think we've covered uh, the, the main points, uh, of course. Um, and there are so many things, as you said. Uh, mm, yes, maybe, 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 yeah, maybe my answers were not as, uh, as directed and, and maybe they were <laughs> longer than usual. Um, yeah, I think, I think, I think um, one, one area where um, there's, there's also um, quite a bit of effort that um, different than, for example, some of the others that, that I mentioned, which are at the lower technology readiness level in terms of their translation. They're still, you know, basic research ideas, uh, and we're exploring it very much like the, uh, uh, the diffractive computing that, that I've described. That's actually a beautiful uh, scientific uh, explore, exploration for, for us to create new kinds of systems. They will have commercial applications, but at least I'm not pursuing them uh, through technology transfer at the moment. But there is one thing that perhaps uh, you know I should have I should have mentioned when you talked about pathology conservativeness of pathology field, and that is actually I, I don't know if you if you're aware of this, but uh, virtual staining uh, yeah. of tissue uh, is an area where I'm so proud about you know what we've achieved, and uh, we're actually commercializing it as we speak uh, right now. We formed a, a uh, you know an effort to take uh, some of the work on virtual staining of tissue using label-free imaging, but not necessarily, in this case, a quantitative phase imaging. In fact, we're using autofluorescence of tissue, uh, uh, which is like uh, no labels again. We're using endogenous fluorophores of tissue and using those signatures uh, as input to trained neural networks to mimic what comes out of histology lab. And that one, we're exactly trying to do the same things uh, in terms of um, entry to pathology and entry to biomedical clinical uh, stuff. So what is the pyramid of opportunities uh, in terms of maybe the research market, because there's a lot of staining done in research, maybe the pharma uh, where for toxicology reports and, and, and uh, animal studies, there's quite a bit of interest for still staining of tissue. So we're exploring that and, and you know, perhaps we face the same challenge that QPI field has been facing in terms of uh, translation into commercial use, but um, because we targeted pathology as a very conservative field, that's the, the core uh, of our technology here in terms of the impact. But but I'm seeing a change in pathologists' mind mindset uh, when I when I kind of interface with them, because they're seeing how their job is not threatened by technologies like this. In fact, will make their job more efficient, more accurate. Uh, perhaps they will even enable to see more patients per hour than they could now because of the bottleneck be becoming, for example, the histology lab sometimes. Like, you know, the patient specimen uh, that goes to the histology lab comes too late, sometimes comes garbage, right? And those kinds of things, I think, with new technology, uh, like virtual staining using AI for staining of uh, tissue without any chemicals, that's going to change. And I'm seeing the signs of pathologists actually working with us to convince the rest of the community on the benefits, uh, on the utility of uh, technology like virtual staining. So I just wanted to mention that I forgot how, you know, to relate it from the QPI angle, the challenges of the QPI to uh, uh, something uh, at the intersection of AI pathology. Yeah, and I, I think for the future of diagnostics, this is going to be huge. And I do, it, it won't not be. Now, okay, so someone's going to watch this back in 20 years' time and go, so <laughs> he was wrong. <laughs> the potential is really there. And, and yeah. it just, you know, before the microscope, what were pathologists doing at that point? You know, these are new tools. They become very disruptive, but it only just gives them a new tool. It doesn't replace things. Just, and better information, more accurate better i hope better personalized medicines because the diagnostics will be far more personalized with information but there's a lot to go into there yeah 
Antoine, thank you very much for joining me today. Everyone who's watched, listen, sorry I ran this over a little bit, but I hope you really enjoyed it. I hope you'll welcome back Adwan next time we have a chat with him. And uh, actually on this, it's not often I've indulged in doing a, a QPI quantitative based imaging type uh, talk. Uh, we had Laura and now we've had Adwan by coincidence quite close together, but their work is so inspirational. I think what we've heard today from the importance of storytelling, from the importance of putting tomatoes with olive oil, I think <laughs> <laughs> really enlightening conversation. Adwan, thank you very much for joining me so late where you are. Thank you for having me. It was, it was wonderful. It was very fun. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.